Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter 7 The difference between Martin's relations to Madeline and to Leora was the difference between a rousing duel and a serene comradeship. From their first evening, Leora and he depended on each other's loyalty and liking, and certain things in his existence were settled forever. Yet his absorption in her was not stagnant. He was always making discoveries about the observations of life which she kept incubating in her secret little head while she made smoke rings with her cigarettes and smiled silently. He longed for the girl Leora. She stirred him, and with gay, frank passion she answered him. But to another, sexless Leora, he talked more honestly than to Gottlieb or his own worried self while with her boyish nod or an occasional word she encouraged him to confidence in his evolving ambition and disdains. Part 2 Digamma Pi Fraternity was giving a dance. It was understood among the anxiously whispering medics that so cosmopolitan was the University of Winnemac becoming that they were expected to wear the symbols of respectability known as dress suits. On the solitary and nervous occasion when Martin had worn evening clothes, he had rented them from the Varsity Pantorium, but he must own them now that he was going to introduce Leora to the world as his pride and flowering. Like two little old people, absorbed in each other and diffidently exploring new, unwelcoming streets of the city where their alienated children live. Martin and Leora edged into the garnished magnificence of Benson, Hanley, and Koch's, the loftiest department store in Zenith. She was intimidated by the luminous cases of mahogany and plate glass, by the opera hats and lustrous mufflers and creamy riding breeches. When he had tried on a dinner suit and come out for her approval, his long brown tie and soft-collared shirt somewhat rustic behind the low evening waistcoat, and when the clerk had gone to fetch collars, she wailed, "'Darn it, Sandy, you're too grand for me. I just simply can't get myself to fuss over my clothes, and here you're going to go and look so spiffy I won't have a chance with you.' He almost kissed her. The clerk, returning, warbled, I think, madame, you'll find that your husband will look very nice indeed in these wing collars. Then, while the clerk sought ties, he did kiss her, and she sighed, Oh, gee, you're one of these people that get ahead. I never thought I'd have to live up to a man with a dress suit and a come-to-heaven collar. Oh, well, I'll tag. For the Digamma Ball, the university armory was extremely decorated. The brick walls were dizzy with bunting, spotty with paper chrysanthemums and plaster skulls and wooden scalpels ten feet long. In six years at Mohalis, Martin had gone to less than a score of dances, though the refined titillations of communal embracing were the chief delight of the coeducational university. When he arrived at the armory, with Leora timorously brave in a blue crepe de chine made in no recognized style. He did not care whether he had a single two-step, 
though he did achingly desire to have the men crowd in and ask Leora, admire her, and make her welcome. Yet he was too proud to introduce her about, lest he seem to be begging his friends to dance with her. They stood alone under the balcony, disconsolately facing the vastness of the floor, while beyond them flashed the current of dancers, beautiful, formidable, desirable. Leora and he had assured each other that, for a student affair, dinner jacket and black waistcoat would be the thing, as stated in the Benson, Hanley, and Koch chart of correct gents wearing apparel. But he grew miserable at the sight of voluptuous white waistcoats, and when that embryo famous surgeon, Angus Dewar, came by, disdainful as a greyhound and pushing on white gloves, which are the whitest, the most superciliously white objects on earth. Then Martin felt himself a hobbledehoy. "'Come on, we'll dance,' he said, as though it were a defiance to all Angus doers. He very much wanted to go home. He did not enjoy the dance, though she waltzed easily and himself not too badly. He did not even enjoy having her in his arms." He could not believe that she was in his arms. As they revolved, he saw Dewar join a brilliance of pretty girls and distinguished-looking women about the great Dr. Silva, dean of the medical school. Angus seemed appallingly at home, and he waltzed off with the prettiest girl, sliding, swinging, deft. Martin tried to hate him as a fool but he remembered that yesterday Angus had been elected to the Honorary Society of Sigma Xi. Leora and he crept back to the exact spot beneath the balcony where they had stood before, to their den, their one safe refuge. While he tried to be nonchalant and talk up to his new clothes, he was cursing the men he saw go by laughing with girls, ignoring his Leora. Not many here yet, he fussed. Pretty soon they'll all be coming, and then you'll have lots of dances. Oh, I don't mind. God, won't somebody come and ask the poor kid? He fretted over his lack of popularity among the dancing men of the medical school. He wished Cliff Clausen were present. Cliff liked any sort of assembly, but he could not afford dress clothes. Then, rejoicing as at sight of the best beloved, he saw Irving Waters, that paragon of professional normality, wandering toward them, but Waters passed by, merely nodding. Thrice Martin hoped and desponded, and now all his pride was gone. If Leora could be happy, I wouldn't care a hoot if she fell for the gabbiest fusser in the whole U and gave me the go-by all evening anything to let her have a good time. If I could coax Dewar over, no, that's one thing I couldn't stand, crawling to that dirty snob. I will. Up ambled Fatty Faff, just arrived. Martin pounced on him lovingly. Hello, old fat. You a stag tonight? Meet my friend, Miss Tozer. Fatty's bulbous eyes showed approval of Leora's cheeks and amber hair. He heaved. Pleased to meet you. Dance starting. 
have the honor in so flattering a manner that Martin could have kissed him. That he himself stood alone through the dance did not occur to him. He leaned against a pillar and gloated. He felt gorgeously unselfish. That various girl wallflowers were sitting near him, waiting to be asked, did not occur to him either. He saw Fatty introduce Leora to a decorative pair of digams, one of whom begged her for the next. Thereafter, she had more invitations than she could take. Martin's excitement cooled. It seemed to him that she clung too closely to her partners, that she followed their steps too eagerly. After the fifth dance, he was agitated. Course, she's enjoying herself. Hasn't got time to notice that I just stand here. Yes, by thunder, and hold her scarf. Sure, fine for her. Fact I might like a little dancing myself. And the way she grins and gops at that fool Brindle Morgan, the, the, the damnedest. Oh, you and I are going to have a talk, young woman. And those hounds trying to pinch her off me. The one thing I've ever loved. Just because they can dance better than I can and spiel a lot of foolishness. And that damn orchestra playing that damn peppery music and she falling for all their damn cheap compliments, and you and I are going to have one lovely little understanding. When she next returned to him, besieged by three capering medics, he muttered to her, Oh, it doesn't matter about me. Would you like this one? Of course you shall have it. She turned to him fully. She had none of Madeline's sense of having to act for the benefit of observers. Through a strained eternity of waiting, while he glowered, she babbled of the floor, the size of the room, and her dandy partners. At the sound of the music, he held out his arms. No, she said, I want to talk to you. She led him to a corner and hurled at him. Sandy, this is the last time I'm going to stand for your looking jealous. Oh, I know. See here. If we're going to stick together, and we are, I'm going to dance with just as many men as I want to, and I'm going to be just as foolish with them as I want to. Dinners and those things. I suppose I'll always go on being a clam. Nothing to say. But I love dancing, and I'm going to do exactly what I want to. And if you had any sense whatever, you'd know I don't care a hang for anybody but you. Yours. Absolute. No matter what fool things you do. And there'll probably be a plenty. So when you go and get jealous on me again, you sneak off and get rid of it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? I wasn't jealous. Yes, I was. Oh, I can't help it. I love you so much. I'd be one fine lover now, wouldn't I, if I never go jealous? All right, only you've got to keep it under cover. Now we'll finish the dance. He was her slave. Part 4 It was regarded as immoral at the University of Winnemac to dance after midnight, and at that hour the guests crowded into the imperial cafeteria. Ordinarily it closed at eight, but tonight it kept open till one, and developed a spirit of almost lascivious mirth. 
Fatty Faff did a jig. Another humorous student, with a napkin over his arm, pretended to be a waiter. And a girl, but she was much disapproved, smoked a cigarette. At the door, Cliff Clausen was waiting for Martin and Leora. He was in his familiar, shiny gray suit with a blue flannel shirt. Cliff assumed that he was the authority to whom all of Martin's friends must be brought for judgment. He had not met Leora. Martin had confessed his double engagement. He had explained that Leora was unquestionably the most gracious young woman on earth. But as he had previously used up all his laudatory adjectives and all of Cliff's patience on the subject of Madeline, Cliff failed to listen and prepared to dislike Leora as another siren of morality. He eyed her now with patronizing enmity. He croaked at Martin behind her back. Good-looking kid, I will say that for her. What's wrong with her? When they had brought their own sandwiches and coffee and mosaic cake from the long counter, Cliff rasped, "'Well, it's grand of a couple of dress-suit swells like you "'to assassinate with me mid the midmost of sartorials and society. "'Gosh, it's fierce I had to miss the select pleasures "'of an evening with anxious doer and associated highboys, "'and merely play a low game of poker, "'in which father deftly removed the sum of six simile, point ten, "'from the four gathered bums and yahoos. "'Well, Leori,' I suppose you and Martykins here have now radiocinated all these questions of Polo and, uh, Monte Carlo, and so on. She had an immense power of accepting people as they were. While Cliff waited, leering, she placidly investigated the inside of a chicken sandwich and assented, Mm-hmm. Good boy. I thought you were going to pull that... If you are a roughneck, I don't see why you think you've got to boast about it stuff that Mart springs on me. Cliff turned into a jovial, and for him, unusually quiet companion. Ex-farmhand, ex-book agent, ex-mechanic, he had so little money, yet so scratching a desire to be resplendent, that he took refuge in pride in poverty, pride in being offensive. Now, when Leora seemed to look through his boasting, he liked her as quickly as had Martin, and they buzzed with gaiety. Martin was warmed to benevolence toward mankind, including Angus Dewar, who was at the end of the room at a table with Dean Silva and his silvery women. Without plan, Martin sprang up, raced down the room. Holding out his hand, he clamored, "'Angus, old man!' want to congratulate you on getting Sigma's eye. That's fine. Dewar regarded the outstretched hand as though it was an instrument which he had seen before, but whose use he could not quite remember. He picked it up and shook it tentatively. He did not turn his back. He was worse than rude. He looked patient. Well, good luck, said Martin, chilled and shaky. Very good of you. Thanks. Martin returned to Leora and Cliff to tell them the incident as a cosmic tragedy. They agreed that Angus Dewar was to be shot. In the midst of it, Dewar came past, trailing after Dean Silva's party, and nodded to Martin, 
who glared back, feeling noble and mature. At parting, Cliff held Leora's hand and urged, "'Honey, I think a lot of Mart, and one time I was afraid the old kid was going to get tied up to—to to parties that would turn him into a handshaker. I'm a handshaker myself.' I know less about medicine than Prof. Robert Shaw, but this boob has some conscience to him, and I'm so darn glad he's playing around with a girl that's real folks. And, oh, listen at me falling all over my clumsy feet, but I just mean I hope you won't mind Uncle Cliff saying he does by golly like you a lot. It was almost four when Martin returned from taking Leora home and sagged into bed. He could not sleep. The aloofness of Angus Dewar racked him as an insult to himself, as somehow an implied insult to Leora, but his boyish rage had passed into a bleaker worry. Didn't Dewar, for all his snobbishness and shallowness, have something that he himself lacked? Didn't Cliff, with his puppy-dog humor, his speech of a vaudeville farmer, his suspicion of fine manners as posing, take life too easily? Didn't Dewar know how to control and drive his hard little mind? Wasn't there a technique of manners as there was of experimentation? Gottlieb's fluent bench technique versus the clumsy and podgy hands of Ira Hinckley. Or was all this inquiry a treachery, a yielding to Dewar's own affected standard? He was so tired that behind his closed eyelids were flashes of fire. His whirling mind flew over every sentence he had said or heard that night, till round his twisting body there was fevered shouting. Part 5 As he grumped across the medical campus next day, he came unexpectedly upon Angus, and he was smitten with the guiltiness and embarrassment one has toward a person who has borrowed money and probably will not return it. Mechanically, he began to blurt, Hello, but he checked it in a croak, scowled, and stumbled on. Oh, Mart, Angus called. He was dismayingly even. Remember speaking to me last evening? It struck me when I was going out that you looked huffy. I was wondering if you thought I'd been rude. I'm sorry if you did. Fact is, I had a rotten headache. Look, I've got four tickets for As It Listeth in Zenith, next Friday evening. Original New York cast. Like to see it? And I noticed you were with a peach at the dance. Suppose she might like to go along with us? She and some friend of hers? Why, gosh, I'll phone her. Darn nice of you to ask us. It was not till melancholy dusk when Leora had accepted and promised to bring with her a probationer nurse named Nellie Byers that Martin began to brood. Wonder if he did have a headache last night. Wonder if somebody gave him the tickets. Why didn't he ask Dad Silva's daughter to go with us? Does he think Leora is some tart I've picked up? Sure, he never really quarrels with anybody, wants to keep us all friendly, so we'll send him surgical patients some day when we're hick GPs and he's a great and only. Why did I crawl down so meekly? I don't care. If Leora enjoys it, 
Me, personally, I don't care two hoots for all this trotting around. Though, of course, it isn't so bad to see pretty women in fine clothes and be dressed as good as anybody. Oh, I don't know. Part 6 In the slightly midwestern city of Zenith, the appearance of a play with the original New York cast was an event. What play it was did not much matter. The Dodsworth Theater was splendid with the aristocracy from the big houses on Royal Ridge. Leora and Nellie Byers admired the Bloods, graduates of Yale and Harvard and Princeton, lawyers and bankers, motor manufacturers, and inheritors of real estate, virtuosi of golf, familiars of New York, who, with their shrill and glistening women, occupied the front rows. Miss Byers pointed out the Dodsworths, who were often mentioned in town topics. Leora and Miss Byers bounced with admiration of the hero when he refused the governorship. Martin worried because the heroine was prettier than Leora. And Angus Dewar, who gave an appearance of knowing all about plays without having seen more than a half a dozen in his life, admitted that the set depicting Jack Vandizen's camp in the Adirondacks sunset the next day was really very nice. Martin was in a mood of determined hospitality. He was going to give them supper, and that was all there was to it. Miss Byers explained that they had to be in the hospital by a quarter after eleven, but Leora said lazily, "'Oh, I don't care. I'll slip in through a window. If you're there in the morning, the old cat can't prove you got in late.' Shaking her head at this lying wickedness, Miss Byers fled to a trolley car while Leora, Angus, and Martin strolled to Epstein's Alt-Nuremberg Café for beer and Swiss cheese sandwiches flavored by the sight of German drinking mottos and papier-mâché armor. Angus was studying Leora, looking from her to Martin, watching their glances of affection. That a keen young man should make a comrade of a girl who could not bring him social advancement— that such a thing as the boy-and-girl passion between Martin and Leora could exist was probably inconceivable to him. He decided that she was conveniently frail. He gave Martin a refined version of a leer and set himself to acquiring her for his own uses. "'I hope you enjoyed the play,' he condescended to her. "'Oh, yes.' "'Jove, I envy you, too.' Of course I understand why girls fall for Martin here, with his romantic eyes. But a grind like me, I have to go on working without a single person to give me sympathy. Oh well, I deserve it for being shy of women. With unexpected defiance from Leora. When anybody says that, it means they're not shy, and they despise women. Despise them? Why, child, honestly— I long to be a Don Juan, but I don't know how. Won't you give me a lesson? Angus's aridly correct voice had become lulling. He concentrated on Leora as he would have concentrated on dissecting a guinea pig. She smiled at Martin now and then to say, Don't be jealous, idiot. I'm magnificently uninterested in this conceited hypnotist but she was flustered by Angus's sleek assurance, 
by his homage to her eyes and wit and reticence. Martin twitched with jealousy. He blurted that they must be going. Leora really had to be back. The trolleys ran infrequently after midnight, and they walked to the hospital through hollow and sounding streets. Angus and Leora kept up a high-strung chatter, while Martin stalked beside them, silent, sulky, proud of being sulky. Skittering through a garage alley, they came out on the mass of Zenith General Hospital, a block long, five stories of bleak windows with infrequent dim blotches of light. No one was about. The first floor was but five feet from the ground, and they lifted Leora up to the limestone ledge of a half-open corridor window. She slid in, whispering, "'Good night. Thanks.' Martin felt empty, dissatisfied. The night was full of a chill mournfulness. A light was suddenly flickering in a window above them, and there was a woman's scream breaking down into moans. He felt the tragedy of parting, that in the briefness of life he should lose one moment of her living presence. "'I'm going in after her. See she gets there safe,' he said." The frigid edge of the stone sill bit his hands, but he vaulted, thrust up his knee, crawled hastily through the window. Ahead of him, in the cork-floored hallway lit only by a tiny electric globe, Leora was tiptoeing toward a flight of stairs. He ran after her, on his toes. She squeaked as he caught her arm. "'We gotta say good night better than that,' he grumbled. "'With that damn doer!' Shh! They'd simply murder me if they caught you here. Do you want to get me fired? Would you care if it was because of me? Yes. No. Well, but they'd probably fire you from medic school, my lad, if— His caressing hands could feel her shiver with anxiety. She peered along the corridor, and his quickened imagination created sneaking forms, eyes peering from doorways. She sighed, then, resolutely, "'We can't talk here. We'll slip up to my room. Roommate's away for the week. Stand there, in the shadow. If nobody's in sight upstairs, I'll come back.' He followed her to the floor above, to a white door, then, breathlessly, inside. As he closed the door, he was touched by this cramped refuge— with its camp beds and photographs from home and softly wrinkled linen. He clasped her, but with hand against his chest she forbade him, as she mourned, "'You were jealous again. How can you distrust me so? With that fool? Women not like him. They wouldn't have a chance. Likes himself too well. And then you, jealous.' "'I wasn't.' Yes, I was, but I don't dare. To have to sit there and grin like a hyena with him between us when I wanted to talk to you, to kiss you. All right, probably I'll always be jealous. It's you that have got to trust me. I'm not easygoing, never will be. Oh, trust me. Their profound and unresisted kiss was the more blind in memory of that barren hour with Angus. They forgot that the superintendent of nurses might dreadfully come bursting in. 
they forgot that Angus was waiting. Oh, curse Angus, let him go home, was Martin's only reflection as his eyes closed and his long loneliness vanished. Good night, dear love, my love forever, he exulted. In the still ghostliness of the hall, he laughed as he thought of how irritably Angus must have marched away. But from the window, he discovered Angus huddled on the stone steps, asleep. As he touched the ground, he whistled, but stopped short. He saw bursting from the shadow a bulky man, vaguely in a porter's uniform, who was shouting, I've caught ya. Back you come into the hospital, and we'll find out what you've been up to. They closed. Martin was wiry, but in the watchman's clasp he was smothered. There was a reek of dirty overalls, of unbathed flesh. Martin kicked his shins, struck at his boulder of red cheek, tried to twist his arm. He broke loose, started to flee, and halted. The struggle, in its contrast to the aching sweetness of Leora, had infuriated him. He faced the watchman, raging. From the awakened Angus, suddenly appearing beside him, there was a thin sound of disgust. Oh, come on! Let's get out of this! Why do you dirty your hands on scum like him? The watchman bellowed. Oh, I'm scum, am I? I'll show you! He collared Angus and slapped him. Under the sleepy street lamp, Martin saw a man go mad. It was not the unfeeling Angus Stewart who stared at the watchman. It was a killer, and his eyes were the terrible eyes of the killer, speaking to the least experienced a message of death. He gasped only, he dared to touch me. A penknife was somehow in his hands. He had leaped at the watchman, and he was busily and earnestly endeavoring to cut his throat. As Martin tried to hold them, he heard the agitated pounding of a policeman's nightstick on the pavement. Martin was slim, but he had pitched hay and strung telephone wire. He hit the watchman judiciously beside the left ear, snatched Angus's wrist, and dragged him away. They ran up an alley across a courtyard. They came to a thoroughfare as an owl trolley glowed and rattled around the corner. They ran beside it, swung up on the steps, and were safe. Angus stood on the back platform, sobbing. My God, I wish I'd killed him. He laid his filthy hands on me, Martin. Hold me here on the car. I thought I'd got over that. Once, when I was a kid, I tried to kill a fellow. God, I wish I'd cut that filthy swine's throat. As the trolley came into the center of the city, Martin coaxed, There's an all-night lunch up Oberlin Avenue where we can get some white mule. Come on, it'll straighten you up. Angus was shaky and stumbling. Angus, the punctilious. Martin led him into the lunchroom where, between ketchup bottles, they had raw whiskey in granite-like coffee cups. Angus leaned his head on his arm and sobbed, careless of stares, till he had drunk himself into obliteration, and Martin steered him home. Then, to Martin, in his furnished room with Cliff snoring, 
the evening became incredible, and nothing more incredible than Angus Dewar. Well, he'll be a good friend of mine now for always. Fine. Next morning, in the hall of the anatomy building, he saw Angus and rushed toward him. Angus snapped, You were frightfully stewed last night, Arrowsmith. If you can't handle your liquor better than that, you better cut it out entirely. He walked on, clear-eyed, unruffled. Chapter 8 And always Martin's work went on, assisting Max Gottlieb, instructing bacteriological students, attending lectures and hospital demonstrations. Sixteen merciless hours to the day. He stole occasional evenings for original research, or for peering into the stirring worlds of French and German bacteriological publications. He went proudly now and then to Gottlieb's cottage, where, against rain-smeared brown wallpaper, were Blake drawings and a signed portrait of Koch. But the rest was nerve-gnawing. Neurology, OB, internal medicine, physical diagnosis— always a few pages more than he could drudge through before he fell asleep at his rickety study table. Memorizing of gynecology, of ophthalmology, till his mind was burnt raw. Droning afternoons of hospital demonstrations among stumbling students barked at by tired clinical professors. The competitive exactions of surgery on dogs in which Angus Dewar lorded it with impatient perfection. Martin admired the professor of internal medicine, T.J.H. Silva, known as Dad Silva, who was also dean of the medical faculty. He was a round little man with a little crescent of mustache. Silva's god was Sir William Osler. His religion was the art of sympathetic healing, and his patriotism was accurate physical diagnosis. He was a Doc Vickerson of Elk Mills, grown wiser and soberer and more sure. But Martin's reverence for Dean Silva was counterbalanced by his detestation for Dr. Roscoe Geek, professor of otolaryngology. Roscoe Geek was a peddler. He would have done well with oil stock. As an otolaryngologist, he believed that tonsils had been placed in the human organism for the purpose of providing specialists with closed motors. A physician who left the tonsils in any patient was, he felt, foully and ignorantly overlooking his future health and comfort. The physician's future health and comfort. His earnest feeling regarding the nasal septum was that it never hurt any patient to have part of it removed and if the most helpful examination could find nothing the matter with the patient's nose and throat, except that he was smoking too much, still, in any case, the enforced rest after an operation was good for him. Geek denounced this cant about letting nature alone. Why, the average well-to-do man appreciated attention. He really didn't think much of his specialists, unless he was operated on now and then. Just a little and not very painfully. Geek had one classic annual address, in which, winging far above otolaryngology, he evaluated all medicine, 
and explain to grateful healers like Irving Waters the method of getting suitable fees. Knowledge is the greatest thing in the medical world, but it's no good whatever unless you can sell it. And to do this, you must first impress your personality on the people who have the dollars. Whether a patient is a new or an old friend, you must always use salesmanship on him. Explain to him, also to his stricken and anxious family, the hard work and thought you are giving to his case. And so, make him feel that the good you have done him, or intend to do him, is even greater than the fee you plan to charge. Then, when he gets your bill, he will not misunderstand or kick. Part 2 There was as yet no vision in Martin of serene spaciousness of the mind. Beyond doubt, he was a bustling young man and rather shrill. He had no uplifted moments when he saw himself in relation to the whole world, if indeed he realized that there was a deal of the world besides himself. His friend Cliff was boorish, his beloved Leora was rustic, however gallant she might be, and he himself wasted energy in hectic busyness and in astonishment at dullness. But if he had not ripened, yet he was close to earth. He did hate pretentiousness, he did use his hands, and he did seek iron actualities with a curiosity inextinguishable. And at infrequent times he perceived the comedy of life, relaxed for a gorgeous hour from the intensity wearing to his admirers. Such was the hour before Christmas vacation when Roscoe Geek rose to glory. It was announced in the Winnemac Daily News that Dr. Geek had been called from the chair of otolaryngology to the vice presidency of the puissant New Idea Medical Instrument and Furniture Company of Jersey City. In celebration, he gave a final address to the entire medical school on the art and science of furnishing the doctor's office. He was a neatly finished person, Geek, eye-glassed and enthusiastic and fond of people. He beamed on his loving students and cried, Gentlemen, the trouble with too many doctors, even those splendid old pioneer war horses who, through mud and storm, through winter's chill blast and August's untempered heat, go bringing cheer and surcease from pain to the world's humblest. Yet even these old nesters not so infrequently settle down in a rut and never shake themselves loose. Now that I am leaving this field where I have labored so long and happily, I want to ask every man jack of you to read, before you begin to practice medicine, not merely your Rosenau and Howell and Gray, but also as a preparation for being that which all good citizens must be, namely, practical men, a most valuable little manual of modern psychology, How to Put Pep in Salesmanship by Grosvenor A. Bibby. For don't forget, gentlemen, and this is my last message to you, the man worthwhile is not merely the man who takes things with a smile, but also the man who's trained in philosophy, practical philosophy, so that, instead of daydreaming and spending all this time talking about ethics, splendid though they are, 
and charity, glorious virtue though that be, yet he never forgets that unfortunately the world judges a man by the amount of good hard cash he can lay away. The graduates of the University of Hard Knocks judge a physician as they judge a businessman, not merely by his alleged high ideals, but by the horsepower he puts into carrying them out and making them pay. And, from a scientific standpoint, don't overlook the fact that the impression of properly remunerated competence which you make on a patient is of just as much importance in these days of the new psychology as the drugs you get into him or the operations he lets you get away with. The minute he begins to see that other folks appreciate and reward your skill, that minute he must begin to feel your power, and so to get well. Nothing is more important in inspiring him than to have such an office that as soon as he steps into it, you have begun to sell him the idea of being properly cured. I don't care whether a doctor has studied in Germany, Munich, Baltimore, and Rochester. I don't care whether he has all science at his fingertips, whether he can instantly diagnose with a considerable degree of accuracy the most obscure ailment, whether he has the surgical technique of a Mayo, a Kreil, a Blake, an Oxner, a Cushing. If he has a dirty old office with hand-me-down chairs and a lot of second-hand magazines, then the patient isn't going to have confidence in him. He is going to resist the treatment, and the doctor is going to have difficulty in putting over and collecting an adequate fee. To go far below the surface of this matter into the fundamental philosophy and aesthetics of office furnishing for the doctor, there are today two warring schools, the tapestry school and the aseptic school, if I may venture to denominate and conveniently distinguish them. Both of them have their merits. The tapestry school claims that luxurious chairs for waiting patients, handsome hand-painted pictures, a bookcase jammed with the world's best literature in expensively bound sets, together with cut glass vases and potted palms, produce an impression of that opulence which can come only from sheer ability and knowledge. The aseptic school, on the other hand, maintains that what the patient wants is that appearance of scrupulous hygiene which can be produced only by furnishing the outer waiting room as well as the inner offices in white painted chairs and tables with merely a Japanese print against a gray wall. But, gentlemen, it seems obvious to me, so obvious that I wonder it has not been brought out before, that the ideal reception room is a combination of these two schools. Have your potted palms and handsome pictures. To the practical physician, they are as necessary a part of his working equipment as a sterilizer or a bombinometer. But so far as possible, have everything in sanitary-looking white. And think of the color schemes you can evolve, or the good wife for you, if she be one blessed with artistic tastes. Rich golden or red cushions in a Morris chair enameled the purest white. A floor covering of white enamel with just a border of delicate rose. Recent and unspotted numbers of expensive magazines with art covers lying on a white table. Gentlemen, 
There is the idea of imaginative salesmanship, which I wish to leave with you. There is the gospel, which I hope to spread in my fresh field of endeavor, the New Idea Instrument Company of Jersey City, where, at any time, I shall be glad to see and shake by the hand any and all of you. Part 3 Through the storm of his Christmas examinations, Martin had an intensified need of Leora. She had been summoned home to Dakota, perhaps for months, on the ground that her mother was unwell, and he had, or thought he had, to see her daily. He must have slept less than four hours a night. Grinding at examinations on the interurban car, he dashed into her, looking up to scowl when he thought of the lively interns and the men patients whom she met in the hospital, scorning himself for being so primitive, and worrying all over again. To see her at all, he had to wait for hours in the lobby, or walk up and down in the snow outside till she could slip to a window and peep out. When they were together, they were completely absorbed. She had a genius for frank passion. She teased him, tantalized him, but she was tender and unafraid. He was sick lonely when he saw her off at the Union Station. His examination papers were competent, but, save in bacteriology and internal medicine, they were sketchy. He turned emptily to the laboratory for vacation time. He had so far displayed more emotion than achievement in his tiny original researches. Gottlieb was patient. It is a fine system, this education. All what we cram into the students, not Koch and two deaners could learn. Do not worry about the research. We shall do it yet. But he expected Martin to perform a miracle or two in the whole fortnight of the holidays, and Martin had no stomach with which to think. He played in the laboratory. He spent his time polishing glassware and when he transplanted cultures from his rabbits, his notes were incomplete. Gottlieb was instantly grim. Was gibt es, Dame? Do you call these notes? Always when I praise a man, he must stop working? Do you think that you are a Theobald Smith or a Novi, that you should sit and meditate? You have the ability of faff. For once, Martin was impenitent. He mumbled to himself as Gottlieb stamped out like a grand duke. Rats, I've got some rest coming to me. Gosh, most fellows, why, they go to swell homes for vacation and have dances and fathers and everything. If Leora was here, we'd go to a show tonight. He viciously seized his cap, a soggy and doubtful object, sought Cliff Clausen, who was spending the vacation in sleeping between poker games at Barney's, and outlined a project of going into town and getting drunk. It was executed so successfully that during vacation it was repeated whenever he thought of the coming torture wheel of uninspiring work, whenever he realized that it was only Gottlieb and Leora who held him here. After vacation, in late January, he found that whiskey relieved him from the frenzy of work, from the terror of loneliness, then betrayed him and left him the more weary, the more lonely. 
He felt suddenly old. He was twenty-four now, he reminded himself, and a schoolboy. His real work not even begun. Cliff was his refuge. Cliff admired Leora and would listen to his babbling of her. But Cliff and Martin came to the misfortune of Founder's Day. Part 4 January 30th, the birthday of the late Dr. Warburton Stonehenge, founder of the medical department of Winnemac, was annually celebrated by a banquet rich in fraternalism and speeches and large lack of wine. All the faculty reserved their soundest observations for the event, and all the students were expected to be present. This year it was held in the large hall of the University YMCA, a moral apartment with red wallpaper, portraits of whiskered alumni who had gone out to be missionaries, and long, thin pine boxes intended to resemble exposed oak beams. About the famous guests, Dr. Roundsfield, the Chicago surgeon, a diabetes specialist from Omaha, a Pittsburgh internist, stood massed the faculty members. They tried to look festal, but they were worn and nervous after four months of school. They had wrinkles and tired eyes. They were all in business suits, mostly unpressed. They sounded scientific and interested. They used words like phlebarteriectasia and hepaticolangioenterostomy. And they asked the guests, so, you've just been in Rochester. What's, uh, what are Charlie and Will doing in orthopedics? But they were full of hunger and melancholy. It was half past seven, and they who did not normally dine at seven dined at six-thirty. Upon this seedy gaiety entered a splendor, a tremendous black-bearded personage, magnificent of glacial shirt-bosom, vast of brow, wild-eyed with genius or with madness. In a marvelous great voice, with a flavor of German accent, he inquired for Dr. Silva, and sailed into the dean's group like a frigate among fishing smacks. Who the dickens is that? wondered Martin. Let's edge in and find out, said Cliff, and they clung to the fast-increasing knot about Dean Silva and the mystery who was introduced as Dr. Benoni Carr, the pharmacologist. They heard Dr. Carr, to the pale admiration of the school-bound assistant professors, boom genially of working with Schmiedeberg in Germany on the isolation of dihydroxypentamethylendiamine, of the possibilities of chemotherapy, of the immediate cure of sleeping sickness, of the era of scientific healing. Though I am American-born, I have the advantage of speaking German from a child, and so, perhaps, I can better understand the work of my dear friend Ehrlich. I saw him receive a decoration from His Imperial Highness the Kaiser. Dear old Ehrlich, he was like a child. There was at this time, but it changed curiously in 1914 and 1915, an active Germanophile section of the faculty. They bent before this tornado of erudition. Angus Dewar forgot that he was Angus Dewar, and Martin listened with excited stimulation. 
Benoni Carr had all of Gottlieb's individuality, all his scorn of machine-made teachers, all his air of a great world which showed Mohalis as provincial, with none of Gottlieb's nervous touchiness. Martin wished Gottlieb were present. He wondered whether the two giants would clash. Dr. Carr was placed at the speaker's table, near the dean. Martin was astonished to see the eminent pharmacologist, after a shocked inspection of the sour chicken and mishandled salad which made up most of the dinner, pour something into his water glass from a huge silver flask, and pour that something frequently. He became boisterous. He leaned across two men to slap the indignant dean on the shoulder. He contradicted his neighbors. He sang a stanza of, I'm bound away for the wild Missouri. Few phenomena at the dinner were so closely observed by the students as the manners of Dr. Benoni Carr. After an hour of strained festivity, when Dean Silva had risen to announce the speakers, Carr lumbered to his feet and shouted, Let's not have any speeches. Only fools make speeches. Wise men sing songs. Whoopee! Oterially, oterially, oterially a lady. You profs are the bunk. Dean Silva was to be seen beseeching him, then leading him out of the room with the assistance of two professors and a football tackle. And in the hush of a joyful horror, Cliff grunted to Martin, Here's where I get mine, and the damn fool promised to stay sober. Huh? I might have known he'd showed up stewed and spill the beans. Oh, maybe the dean won't hand me hell proper. He explained, Dr. Benoni Carr was born Benno Karkowski. He had graduated from a medical school which gave degrees in two years. He had read vastly, but he had never been in Europe. He had been spieler in medicine shows, chiropodist, spiritualist medium, esoteric teacher, head of sanitariums for the diversion of neurotic women. Cliff had encountered him in Zenith when they were both drunk. It was Cliff who had told Dean Silva that the celebrated pharmacologist, just back from Europe, was in Zenith for a few days and perhaps might accept an invitation. The dean had thanked Cliff ardently. The banquet ended early, and there was inadequate attention to Dr. Rounsfield's valuable address on the sterilization of catgut. Cliff sat up worrying and admitting the truth of Martin's several observations. Next day, he had a way with women when he deigned to take the trouble. He pumped the dean's girl secretary and discovered his fate. There had been a meeting of a faculty committee. The blame for the Benoni Carr outrage had been placed on Cliff, and the dean had said all the things Cliff had imagined, with a number which he had not possessed the talent to conceive. But the dean was not going to summon him at once. He was going to keep him waiting in torture, then execute him in public. Goodbye, old M.D. degree. Rats. I never thought much of the doctor business. Guess I'll be a bond salesman, said Cliff to Martin. He strolled away. He went to the dean and remarked, Oh, Dean Silva, I just dropped in to tell you I've decided to resign from the medic school. Been offered a big job in, uh, in Chicago, and I don't think much of the way you run the school anyway. 
too much memorizing, and too little real spirit of science. Good luck, Doc. So long. G- uh, said Dean Silva. Cliff moved into Zenith, and Martin was left alone. He gave up the double room at the front of his boarding house for a hall room at the rear, and in that narrow den he sat and mourned in a desolation of loneliness. He looked out on a vacant lot in which a tattered advertisement of pork and beans flapped on a leaning billboard. He saw Leora's eyes and heard Cliff's comfortable scoffing, and the quiet was such as he could not endure.' 